You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Today we're going to be in Mark 14, and this passage has some mind-blowing stuff in it. Um, I, I do most of my sermon prep on TikTok these days, as you guys know. Um, only like three of you laughed at that. That's a joke. If you're new and you're like really nervous right now, um, I promise I read more than uh, just the stuff on TikTok. But there is this account I follow on TikTok. Um, I think the name of the account is like Mind Blowing Facts. And I love it because it just it's just these short 60-second videos about things that that, that are just crazy to think about, like truths that we don't even realize are true. And one of them I saw recently was that even though mankind has put a man on the moon, and I think like Jeffrey Bezos and Elon Musk are on their way to Mars soon and all that stuff, even with all the technological advancements that we have in this world, uh, scientists can't, can't like readily determine how eels reproduce. Did y'all know this? This is just mind-blowing to me. So first of all, eels can go from freshwater to saltwater, which is unique uh, among marine animals. Um, but then we've never, like, man, and by, by we, I don't mean like me and my wife. I mean like we as in mankind have never observed eels reproducing in any way, whether in the wild or in captivity. And it, it, it seems as if there's lots of theories about how they reproduce, but none of them are verified because scientists haven't been able to, to verify or prove or see it actually happening. Even eels that are in captivity, no matter how much they play like Marvin Gaye and Usher, they can't witness reproduction happening. Um, and isn't that just mind-blowing that like of all the technological advancements and scientific advancements that, that our God is so great, he's created a world with mysteries like eels. And, um, and so there are some things in our world and then consequently in the Bible that are just gonna, they're just gonna be mind-blowing things to us that are gonna be hard for us to grasp in our tiny human brains. And no matter how much I study and how much I try to exposit it well to you, there are some things that ought to just be mysterious to you as a Christian um, that just ought to blow your minds. And so what I want you to see in this passage of Jesus praying in the garden are, are a few mind-blowing things um, observations, if you will. I've got three of them that will serve as my three sermon points today. Uh, first, we're going to see the humanity of Jesus. Uh, the humanity of Jesus, knowing that he is deity, knowing that he's God, we see very clearly in the garden the humanity of Jesus, which is mind-blowing. Secondly, we see the submissive nature of Jesus, that Jesus is uh, submissive to the will of the Father, uh, being one with the Father, yet he is submissing, so submitting to the will of the Father. That's mind-blowing. And thirdly, and finally, we'll look at Jesus' courage, that he's courageous. This one doesn't sound mind-blowing, but I think as we drill down and look into it a little deeper, we can see that it is. And with each of these, I'll show you why I believe these are mind-blowing facts. I hope that you're, in a good way, surprised by the glorious news of the gospel, like a dad on Christmas when the kids are opening presents. The dads are just as surprised as the kids, like baseball stuff. Um, the more we read the Bible, I think the more we're just like kind of blown away by the truth of the gospel. And so let's look at the first one, that Jesus is human. Um, just a quick plug, just good resource for you, especially if you're not a reader like me. Um, and, and by that, I mean, I'm not a reader. Um, reading is a discipline for me. And so I love things that are, that are audio or that are uh, video. Um, there's a, there's a, a TV series called The Chosen that's out. You just go in your app store and download The Chosen. They have their own app. There's two seasons of it now, which follow the life of Jesus. They do a great job at showing the humanity of Jesus. Uh, they don't downplay his deity. Um, they do to, it's fiction, so they do take some creative freedoms. But they, the, the producers of the show, I think, do a great job at showing uh, the humanity of Christ. And so that's just a good resource for you if you want to jot that down real quick. But we see in Christ um, our, our Savior, who is fully God, but yet also is fully 
human. And we often view humanity as, in and of itself, as a weakness, don't we? Like, we even, like when your boss expects too much of you, we often say, man, like, I'm only human, right? I can only do so much. We use that phrase to, to give the connotation that there is a limitation on what we can accomplish and do, because we're only human. Uh, but what I want you to see, though, is that humanity is not the weakness. We're created in the image of God. The Latin phrase for that is the imago Dei. Uh, we're created in his image with creativity, with emotions, things to be like God. So humanity in and of itself is not the weakness. Jesus is not weak. And we don't here see Jesus being a weak savior when he's praying in the garden. Rather, what we see is the weight of depravity coming upon Jesus, him becoming our sin. But when we say things like, I'm only human, uh, we're, not, we're not limited because we're human. We're limited because we're depraved humans. Because we are marred and stained by sin, our depravity is actually what our problem is. And perhaps more than any other passage, though, we see not that Jesus is depraved, but we see that he is human. We see his humanity on display in the Garden of Gethsemane. <clears throat> Excuse me, not again, or again, not weakness, but humanity. Let's look at the first couple verses. Mark 14, 32 through 33. It says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now he comes, and it says that he leaves them, he goes off by himself to pray. And the Bible describes Jesus as greatly distressed and troubled. Does that trouble any of you? Um, I think this is one of the things that will begin to blow your mind a little bit. Um, as you think about the God of the universe, we know from Scripture that Jesus has always existed. He didn't come into existence at Christmas time. He's always existed. Uh, the Bible names him as the creator. So here's the creator of all the universe kneeling in prayer, being distressed and greatly troubled. We, what we see on display is his humanity and the emotional, the emotive side of our Savior. Now, uh, there's a doctrine called the hypostatic union, which all Orthodox Christians hold to, and that is the belief that Jesus has two natures. He is uh, fully man, and he is fully God at the same time. Listen, now, math is hard, amen? Parents that have kids in school, and you're trying to, like, come, come along their teachers with common core, right? Can I get a witness? That is hard. Uh, that's difficult. That's why my wife handles that. Um, but, but spiritual math is mind-blowing as well. It's, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and that doesn't equal 200%. That 100% God, 100% man equals 100% Savior, 100% Messiah. That to fulfill all that the Messiah needed to be, he had to be both God and man. Not 50-50, not some kind of mutant half-breed, um, not God sometimes and man sometimes, but rather fully God and fully man at the same time. Again, that is mind-blowing. It's hard for me to explain to you, but it is the great truth of the gospel. And here in the garden, God himself is greatly distressed and troubled. That's why it's mind-blowing. An all-perfect, all-knowing God is experiencing anxiety. Now, when you experience worry and anxiety... Um, if you're anything like I think most of us are, then you, what you feel you're experiencing is weakness. But what God has placed in you when you experience anxiety, sometimes it's misplaced, of course, but what God has placed in you is his image that, that is actually healthy for you. It is healthy for you to worry about things that ought to be worried about. Uh, Pastor Jeremy's done some great teaching on emotions, even in just like our Instagram story and quick little video snippets, but in counseling with us, um, he's, he's taught us, those of us who've been in counseling with him, he has taught us that our emotions are actually God-given and healthy. We tend to view emotions like anger and worry and sadness as all negative and bad, but those are emotions that we've been given 
and made in the image of God. He experiences anger. He experiences grief. And so even though it's mind-blowing to us, it's a great truth that when we see Jesus praying in the garden, we see the God of all the universe greatly distressed and troubled. And what that means for you by way of application is that in your deepest times of grief, sadness, depression, anxiety, that, that all of those emotions that you feel that are overwhelming to you, Jesus understands those. You, you, you feel me? He's, he's empathetic to those things. He's not unaware of how those things affect your life. That's good news for us. He's empathetically even praying for you in those times. Matter of fact, I think he's praying for us right now. Hebrews 7.25 is one of my favorite verses that says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Listen to this. Since he always lives, he rose from the dead, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus, the God of the universe, is praying for you now. That's good news. Amen? His words of the apostles in verse 32 of Mark 14, he says, sit here while I pray. I think some of you guys need to hear that word this morning. The, the things in your life, the circumstances that have crept in that you've, you keep trying to fix and you keep trying to find all the solutions yourself and get it fixed by yourself. Jesus is saying, calm down, sit there while he prays for you. The son is speaking to the father on your behalf in heaven. What a, what a mind-blowing truth that the king of kings cares for us and prays for us. Child of God, listen to me. His words echo to you today. The same thing he said to the apostles, he says to you, sit down. He's still praying. He still cares for you. And here he goes further into this garden. He takes with him what, what scholars and theologians call the inner circle. These three guys he kind of kept a little bit closer than the other 12, or the other nine, I mean. Um, Peter, James, and John. And he takes them in a little bit closer. And in verse 34, he says to them, he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, y'all have kids that ever say, like, I'm dying of thirst, or I'm starving to death, or it's bedtime, bash them kids, and y'all start asking for a snack, right? Like, that's just how, how it goes. One kid gets a snack, and then every kid's got to get a snack because suddenly they're starving to death. Well, they're not literally starving to death, right? Um, but Jesus here is literally dying of sorrow. Actually, the, the Greek word Mark uses to record this was a saying that, that was kind of prevalent in ancient language that we lose in modern language. It's the Greek word uh, paralupos, which means that I'm sorrowful to the point that I'm dying. I'm dying of sorrow is what the word literally means. And Jesus says paralupos, meaning that he is dying of sorrow, which I think shows us a theological truth that Jesus didn't just die a martyr's death, that he was wrongfully convicted of a crime and murdered unjustly. Although all that is true, I think Jesus died primarily out of the sorrow of sin because of sin. He died as a redeemer out of sin. He died because of the sin that was placed upon him. And that weight of sin that was going to be placed upon Jesus on the cross was an agonizing weight for him to bear. And it began here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22 gives us a couple other neat details. It's a parallel passage, one of the synoptic gospels. In Luke 22:43, it says, There appeared to Jesus an angel from heaven strengthening him. And so while he's praying in the garden, there is an angel that's strengthening Jesus. And then the next verse says, Being in agony... He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, if you don't think Jesus actually sweat blood, I don't think you're a heretic 
But I do tend to think that, that this is a literal thing that happened. Um, this is something that can actually happen medically today. It's a process called hematidrosis, where blood vessels that feed sweat glands rupture. And typically it happens because of great stress. Um, that people can be under such duress that it causes those blood vessels to rupture and then causing sweat mixed with blood to come through their pores. And I believe this is what's happening to Jesus uh, physically and in his humanity in the garden. This is the depths of the sorrow that your Savior went through to save you. Now, scholars in the past have tried to explain this sorrow away because it's troubled them that the fact that uh, one who is God, who knew that he was going to raise from the dead, who knew that he was going to be victorious over everything, it troubled them that he could be sorrowful about it. Um, but we, we don't need to feel trouble about that sorrow because it's actually a great truth. Uh, the early church father Ambrose actually wrote about this in one of his commentaries on this passage, and he says this. He says, There is no instance in which I admire more his kindness and his majesty. Uh, the quote continues, it's kind of lengthy. It says, For he would not have done so much for me uh, if he had not taken upon him my feelings. He grieved for me who had no cause of grief for himself. And laying aside the delights of the eternal Godhead, he experiences, he experiences the affliction of my weakness. And Ambrose finishes by saying, I boldly call it sorrow because I preach the cross. To preach the, the truth of the gospel is to preach Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from that death. This is utterly mind-blowing that Jesus went through this depth of sorrow for you. He did it for you. He didn't go to the cross for an uncertainty. He didn't go to the cross with some kind of hope that maybe if I do this, then people will call upon my name to be saved. He went to the cross with certainty, knowing you beforehand, knowing you before you existed, knowing that he would call you into this eternal family and redeem you from your sin. This is what's on Jesus' mind and his heart and weighing on his soul as he kneels in the garden and his blood drips from his face. Mark 14, 35 says, Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And so we see Jesus' humanity in that he prays for escape, but we see also his submission and that he submits to the will of the Father to go to the cross. And so not only is Jesus human, but Jesus is submissive, point two. Now, submission is a good thing. Um, the Bible presents submission as a good thing. We tend to look at all submission as a negative thing, right? Because we're, we're America. Freedom, bald eagles and stuff, red, white, and blue. We love our freedom, right? Um, but the Bible calls all Christians to submission. Um, first and foremost, we're called to submit to God. We're called to submit to God's will instead of our own will. And so we lay down our own freedoms to follow God's will for us. But the Bible also calls for a lot more practical submission than that. We're supposed to submit to the government. Any Ron Swanson's in the house don't like that, like me? Um, listen, I don't like it, but the Bible calls me to it, right? Um, the Bible calls uh, us to be in submission to the church, to be under godly leadership. That's why at our church we have a plurality of pastors, so you're not just submitting to one guy that preaches all the sermons, but you're submitting to godly men that you hold accountable, um, but you're submitting to the church. Children are to submit to parents. Wives are to submit to husbands. You have all of these types of submissions that are mentioned in the Bible, and they're good and holy things. So why do we look at submission as a negative thing? I think the reason is probably MMA. We see guys get in the octagon, right? And they choke each other out, and we call that a submission. There was a UFC fight last night, I think, right? Maybe. Um, 
But submission is only bad in the sense of if you're submitting to an opponent. You see, in MMA, when you submit, when you tap out, so to speak, you are, you're trying to overcome someone and you fail at that. And so you tap out, yielding victory and control to your opponent. And if that's your view of submission, when you read about submission in the Bible, then you're always going to fall short of that and you're always going to be stubborn and resistant to that. But the Bible calls us to submission in another sense. You see, if the object of your submission is not an opponent, but a friend and a good master, then submission is not a bad thing, but rather it's a beautiful act of trust. That's what biblical submission is. And here, when we see Jesus submit to the will of the Father, it's not that he wants to do something so hard and he's finally given up because the Father's stronger and the Father's got him in a chokehold and Jesus in the garden is tapping out and saying, okay, fine, I'll go to the cross because I have no other option. Rather, Jesus is lovingly and joyfully submitting to something that he knows will crush him because he's submitting to a good father. Verse 36, he says, Abba, Father, which is the equivalent of something in English like we would say, Daddy. I don't pray, Daddy, because I just think it's a little bit irreverent and disrespectful, but y'all do you. Some of y'all might do that. But Jesus here, I think, has more of a right to that relationship than any of us. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And then here's the submission. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, is there, is there a contradiction within the Trinity here, within the Godhead? Is, is the will of the Son different than the will of the Father? I don't know. Ask Pastor Jeremy, right? I, this, is, this is one of those things that, that I struggle to find words to explain this. But I know that in Jesus' flesh and in his humanity, he was dreading the, the wrath that would be poured out upon him on the cross. But I also know that in his spirit and in his soul, he was joyfully submissive to the will of the Father to go to the cross and raise from the dead. Um, it, I, I preached on this at the nine o'clock. If y'all don't know, y'all get, the, y'all get the second sermon. So sometimes I'm tired and don't do as well here. Sometimes I mess up all on the nine o'clock and do better here. Um, but after preaching this in the first service, one of our deacons came up to me and he said, you know, it reminds me of childbirth. And he's a man, by the way. And I was like, well, this is an interesting conversation. But he, but he talked about how his wife experienced such agony and pain in childbirth, but it was one of the most joyful experiences because they have the birth of their children through that. I was like, man, that's a good analogy that how, how Christ was, as he, as he had the cross set before him, he knew it was agonizing. It brought great anxiety upon him, worries and fears in his flesh. But yet the Bible also says, for the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross. To bring, not a physical birth, but to bring a spiritual new birth to those who had fallen away from him through depravity. Now the cup that he speaks of was a cup that was a reference of God's wrath. Usually in the Old Testament it was used to describe God's wrath being poured out, like in Zechariah 12 when it says, Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. Like the, the, the wrath of God would be poured out to cause people to stumble, stagger, be killed. That that is, that is the wrath of God when we see the cup imagery used in the Old Testament. That's normally what's being described. And so Jesus' agony wasn't just due to the physical pain of the cross, although that was very real. 
That's not just what brought his agony. And I, I believe what more so brought his agony was the spiritual wrath that would be poured out upon him. Justice because of our sin, that God is holy and just. And when there is sin, there is consequence for sin. When there is sin, there is death that follows. When there is sin, there is wrath that is necessarily poured out. The beauty of the gospel is, is, is a doctrine called substitutionary atonement. That what happened on the cross was a transaction that brought you eternal life. That the wrath that you deserved because of your sin was not poured out upon you, but was instead poured out upon Jesus. And Jesus in his perfect life, all the righteousness that he had in his perfection is now imputed or put upon your account. That's the gospel. This great transaction, this great substitution, what we call substitutionary atonement, is your hope for eternal life, and it is your only hope for eternal life. And without the substitutionary death of Jesus, you will perish in hell for eternity. But this is freely offered to you. You repent, you turn from your sins, you trust in Jesus, and when God looks at you, he doesn't cast judgment and wrath upon you, but rather he sees the righteousness of his perfect son, Jesus, who died in your place. Can I get a witness? Amen. That's good news. That's the gospel. And this is why it's mind-blowing, the fact that Jesus is submissive. is because the king of all the universe, the king of all kings, the one who every knee will bow to, every tongue will confess him as king, the king of all the universe, utters these words, not what I will, but what you will. The only man who's ever had a right to have whatever he wants, Jesus says, not what I want, but what the Father wants. Now, Jesus is not being apathetic here. He's not saying, you know, here's what I'd prefer, Father, but I don't really care. He's not being apathetic. He's not like a woman trying to decide where to eat lunch, right? Men, you don't have to say amen. We know it's true. I, I get it. You got your wives close to you. Um, I was nowhere near my wife this week, and she texted me and asked where, where they should eat dinner. And I panicked because I thought I was supposed to meet him for dinner and I'd planned to eat dinner somewhere else. And so I like panicked real quick and I was like, did I misread the calendar? What's happening? And she's like, no, I'm just asking for your input, like where we should eat dinner. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I like Outback. And she's like, nah, I don't want Outback. <laughs> that's, that's, that's just, that's just a, a woman's mind, right? When we come into where we're going to eat. But this is, that's not the attitude of Christ in the garden. He's not just saying like, eh. I don't really want this. He's not being flippant. He's not being apathetic. But rather, he is communicating honestly with God. You know you can be honest with the Lord in your prayers? Like, really honest? Because God knows your heart anyways. You come to Jesus with your King James language like, I come to thou praising thee. And, and in your heart, you're just like mad about something that God has allowed in your life. Why don't you just go to him honestly? Have you read the Psalms? The Psalms are brutally honest to God. They, they go so much as almost accusing God of things. Like, like I think God is, is pleased with us when we come to him saying, God, I'm frustrated with the things I'm seeing in my life. I'm confused to your plan. I don't understand why you've allowed things. And I'm angry or I'm worried or I'm stressed. But yet, not my will, but what you will. I think this is what we see in Jesus's humanity and in his submission, that he's coming to the Father honestly, in the most open relationship you could imagine. Saying, this is going to suck. I don't want this. But yet, this is what's necessary. Verse 37, he comes out of this prayer. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, why are you asleep? 
Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think Jesus says this to be descriptive of the disciples as well as himself. And again, he went away and prayed, praying the same words. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus prayed a total of three times the same prayer. And Luke adds this detail, that they were a stone's throw away from Jesus. Now, I don't know if, like, when Luke says that they were a stone's throw from Jesus when he's praying this. Number one, I don't know how big the stone is. And number two, I don't know how strong the guy is throwing it. But even if we assume that the stone is little and the guy is strong, that's still not that far away. And what we see here is the, the three inner circle disciples being a stone's throw away from Jesus, close to Jesus, probably close enough to even hear his words because we have them recorded, although it could have been supernaturally imputed to them through the Holy Spirit. But I just tend to think they, they heard a lot of this prayer. But at some point, as he's repeating this prayer, they, they, they venture off into la-la land and they go to sleep. That a, place, a garden of agony for Christ was a garden of comfort for them. They just found a little cushy moss bed and went to sleep. And I think it was last year there was an interview with um, one of the leaders of underground church in one of the Middle Eastern countries, and his identity was concealed, and they interviewed him, and they kind of blurred his face and changed his voice and stuff. And, and they asked him about how the gospel was going forward, though they couldn't meet publicly, they couldn't proclaim the gospel publicly, uh, they were under threat of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and people were being martyred and killed. And, and they asked him about the Great Commission still being carried out, and he spoke openly and freely about how people were putting their lives on the line so that people could know the truth of the gospel about the cross and about the resurrection. And what was interesting about the interview is that they shift to asking him about the Western church, the church in Europe, the church in America. And he described the Western church. And not, he didn't discredit the, our faith or belief or anything like that. He wasn't being hateful, but he described the Western church as almost being asleep. And those were, those were convicting and striking words to me as I heard it because it, it, he's like, we're over here in a war zone for the gospel to go forward, and I feel like the Western church has just been lulled to sleep by the lies of Satan. That they've just, they've got everything they need. They've, they've got Jesus, and then they've got their other stuff. And it reminded me of the disciples in the garden, that, that they're literally laying down at the crux of history, seeing the most pivotal moment of all the world, and they just drift off to sleep. And we think, well, we can never do that. But Satan would love nothing more than for our hobbies and our sports and our political debates and our social media and so forth and so on, and you fill in the blank, to distract us to the point that it becomes just like a Netflix show that just streams and streams and streams while we fall asleep, while we forget the importance of the mission before us. I believe Jesus is saying to us, could you, not, could you not stay awake for a little while? I'll have a job for you to do, to keep watch, to avoid temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We succumb to the flesh. We fall asleep. We fail at the mission time after time after time, which is why as Christians, we don't rely on our hope. Y'all have heard it all the time, right? People that don't go to church. Well, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. Yeah, I know. I'm a pastor. I deal with them all the time. <laughs> right? That's why I tell people. I'm like, man, you're preaching to the choir. New Heights Church is full of hypocrites. They're the craziest ones. 
But, but when I invite someone to New Heights Church, I'm not inviting them to a group of just really, really good, perfect people. I'm inviting them to a perfect Savior with a group of messed up people who kind of crawl their way to heaven imperfectly. But because Jesus has courage, he imputes that to us as well. And so the third thing I want you to see is I, as I kind of close it down is that Jesus has courage. Jesus is courageous. Now, this doesn't seem as mind-blowing as the other two, but I want to show you why it is. First of all, I think courage is, is not facing something uh, with no fear. That's not what courage is. Like, imagine, um, to go back to my MMA analogy, I'm not a fighter at all. I'm a lover, not a fighter. But let's, let's pretend that I was. If I was going to get in the octagon with, um, let's say, Conor McGregor, and he's been on a losing streak lately, he broke his leg and stuff, but like, he's still, you know, he's a grown man, he's strong, he's trained, he knows what he's doing. If I'm going to get in the ring with Conor McGregor, I'm going to have to have some courage, Right? Now, if I'm going to get in the ring with my youngest son, Tava, you wouldn't say I was courageous, right? You'd say I was abusive <laughs> instead. But it doesn't take courage for a grown man to fight a child, even if he's not trained. But it does take courage to step up into something that seems like you have no chance of winning. And so courage is, is this. Courage is having the resolve to do what's needed in the face of anxiety and adversity. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ shows himself to be courageous. He doesn't take an easy road to redemption. He takes the necessary one in the face of anxiety and in the face of adversity. After praying and receiving confirmation on what he must do from the Father, he willingly walks into his arrest. Now, I touched on this a little bit last week, if you were here, how at the Passover, um, the custom of the Jews was to not leave their home because they, they were commemorating something that happened in Egypt. And if they, in Egypt, when they celebrated the first Passover, the death angel passed through Egypt. And if they were to leave their home, the sword of God, the slaying of the death angel, would have taken them out. And so they even observed that tradition into Jesus' time. And so in tradition, at the night what they would observe the Passover, what we would call the, the Last Supper, as Jesus gathers with the disciples, it was customary for him to not leave that house. But instead, he walked out into the night. He went for a walk. He said, we're going to go to the Mount of Olives. Now, what's most interesting about this, he goes to the Mount of Olives, specifically, the Gospels tell us, to the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke's account, it says that he goes there, and Luke adds this phrase, as was his custom. As was his custom. Now, remember, he had told the disciples they were going to abandon him. He had just told Judas that he was going to betray him and turn him over to be arrested. And Jesus, knowing that his arrest was imminent, What's he do? He doesn't flee for the border. He doesn't go out of the country. He doesn't lock the doors and the windows and get in his bed. No, Jesus goes to the exact place that everyone would have known that he went to. It says, as was his custom. He knew his arrest was imminent. And what's mind-blowing is Jesus didn't merely allow the crucifixion to happen to him. He made sure that it happened. You see, Jesus is in control of all the events that we're going to see as we finish the book of Mark. We're going to see that Jesus is in control of all of those things. John 18, 2 gives us this detail. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus went to the place where he knew the authorities could arrest him, where he knew they could find him. Jesus wasn't taken by surprise. He laid his life down courageously and purposefully to save jacked up people like you. John 10, 17, Jesus' words say this, this, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Listen to what he says. No one takes it from me. No one took his life from him. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see, Jesus is in control of the entire thing. And the ending of our passage shows that he is willing to step into that arrest and that betrayal. Mark 14, 40 says, Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He doesn't run. He doesn't shrink back. We're going to see later in the chapter, Peter draws his sword and cuts the guy's ear off. And he tells Peter, put your sword away. We're not fighting this. You see, Jesus knew that no one could pay for sins except him. He was the perfect one. And he would suffer and die alone, drinking that fullness of that cup of wrath from the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus found agony while his disciples slept and found comfort. And it made me think of another garden one at the beginning of your Bible, the Garden of Eden, where we see Adam and Eve gathered not in the Garden of Eden or in the Garden of Gethsemane, but in the Garden of Eden, and in a place where they had every comfort imaginable. There was no agony, there was no anxiety, they, they, they didn't have anything that they had to be fearful of, but yet they still failed. And this great theological truth shines through out of the Garden of Gethsemane that, that contrasts what happened in the Garden of Eden. You see, in a Garden of Comfort, Adam utterly failed. But in a garden of adversity, Jesus in a highway succeeded. And he, This is why the Bible calls him the second Adam or the greater Adam, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the only hope for your eternal life, the Savior of the world. And we're going to offer you some food today, but it's not, it's not the forbidden fruit of the garden. Instead, it is the fruit of Jesus' death. We call it communion. It's a symbolic meal meaning that you're not going to get full off this. You're still going to go to lunch afterward. But we're going to offer you bread and juice that symbolizes the body and blood of Jesus. And as you partake in this today, if you choose to, um, you're going to be reminded of the fact that Jesus went through all of this, all this mind-blowing truth of what Jesus did. He did it to save a sinful person like you. We practice what's called intention, which means we tear the bread and as we tear a piece of bread off, we're reminded that Jesus' flesh was torn off of his back and off of his brow. And we dip it in the juice. And as we soak that bread in the juice, we're reminded that his body was soaked in his blood as his life was laid down to pay for sins. And because of Jesus' humanity, we can come to this table with confidence, fully embracing the Imago Dei, the image of God that we're created in. Understanding that we are fully human and fully loved by God with value because Jesus purchased us. And because Jesus is submissive, we can submit to a good king. That We can come to this table saying we're not living out our own will for our lives, but rather we are submitting our entire lives, our stuff, our families, everything we're submitting to the will of God rather than ours. And because Jesus is courageous that we can step into trials, tribulations, circumstances, anxieties, all those things this week with courage of the gospel and hope in the gospel because Jesus has given that to us. And so that's how we come to this table today. Joyful, thankful, reverent, because we serve a good king who went through this much to save sinners like you and like me. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. 
To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.